Hello and welcome to This Is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow. I'm joined here with Jeremy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming, Jeremy. Jeremy's here today not only because he's a huge music fan, but also because he's the owner of the largest CD and record collection of anybody I know. I love music. Listen to lots of music. Okay. Yeah. So um, this episode, we're in May 1989. And I'm wondering if you flash yourself back to May 1989. Is there any modern rock that you were listening to? Definitely not. Uh, I had no idea of modern rock. I was nine. Uh-huh. My mom listened to New Country. Okay. So I was listening to some Brooks and Dunn, Garth Brooks. From I think her. I was hearing a little bit of that too. And then at school, we all listened to rap music. Mm-hmm. We call it hip hop now, but it was all rap. So I can tell you about rap from that era. When did you get into modern rock? Let's see, 93, 94 maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably true of a lot of people our age. Yeah. So let's just jump right into things here. Uh, Last month, the number one song for the entire month was a song by XTC, Mm -hmm. the mayor of Simpleton. But starting in the first week of May, a new song takes the top spot. That song is Fascination Street by The Cure. Yes. You like this one? Love that song. Love The Cure. Uh, I was reflecting on my tape collection. That's when I got into modern rock. It was all about cassettes Mm -hmm. for me. And I don't know if they're my favorite band, but I had more Cure tapes than I had tapes for any other band. Oh, wow. So I was very into them, and I bought every Cure tape I could find. Okay. This is pre-internet, of course, so mm-hmm. it was, I couldn't find them all, but I bought a lot. So Fascination Street is from The Cure's eighth album. Yeah. Uh, which is called Disintegration. Yeah, a great album. It was the pinnacle of their career. Mm-hmm. Artistically, according to most, not my favorite album of theirs, but usually considered their best album and definitely sold better than all their other albums except maybe their first greatest hits album. You know who else thinks it's their greatest album? Who? Flashing back to, uh, I think, the first season of South Park. Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever catch this episode? It no, was, I definitely um, did not. Sorry. Uh, Mecca Streisand. It was, it was a giant Barbara Streisand uh, attacking the city, and they had to call That's, in makes sense. a gigantic Robert Smith, lead singer of The Cure, to save the day. Uh, that sounds a great, like a great battle. I want to see that. Yeah, yeah. and as, as he left, uh, one of the South Park kids declared that Disintegration was the greatest album of all time. Yeah, a lot of people feel that way, but I don't think you do because I saw you sell their record for a dollar. Well, let me tell you something about that. Uh, that album was banned in my house, so oh, yeah? there was no point in hanging on to it. My wife would not allow it to be played. Was it just too bleak for her? I think so. I think um, it has some emotional ties to maybe a dark period in her past. Oh, and I think that's it fair. Kind of brought back bad memories. So I listen to my depressing music when my wife is gone. Mm-hmm. I save that for me time. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, The Cure. Their previous album was kind of a, a big commercial breakthrough for them. Yeah. But I think Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me is a much poppier album. Yeah. And Disintegration goes back to a gloomier, gothier feel. Uh, yeah, it does. And, you know, I think one reason it was successful is that I feel like it combines two eras of Cure. Mm-hmm. It is a lot poppier than a lot of their gloomy stuff, but it still has that gloomy vibe. And um, Robert Smith himself puts it in a trilogy with Pornography, mm-hmm. the album Pornography. I think that was their fourth album. Second installment, Disintegration. Third, later on, Blood Flowers. Okay. They're all long gloomy songs mm-hmm. but yeah disintegration just it still had that pop vibe enough pop goodness to carry over the uh depressing mm-hmm. yeah there's some vibes. there's some good songs in here for sure yeah. i'm poppy songs as well 
Now, I've heard that one of the reasons that Robert Smith decided to go in kind of a gloomier direction, more gothy direction, uh, was he had just turned 29 and so realized... Old. So old. He, he realized that his 30th birthday was looming. And from what I've read, he was feeling that all great art, at least in music, uh, was accomplished by people before they turned 30. And so he looked at this as kind of his his last chance to make a, a masterpiece or a, a true artistic statement. Yeah, um, that's great. But it also, his 30th birthday approaching sent him into a bit of a depression. Yeah, I would agree with him, except uh, when it comes to folk music and anything related to the folk genre. Mm-hmm. I include country, real country in that, blues. People usually get better with age in that those genres. But so, with pop music, yeah, they tend to peak around 30. Yeah. Sorry, Robert Smith's right. So he had reason to be depressed. No, I don't think so. But he does have a history of being contrary and, um, you know, recording what he wants and not what the people necessarily want. Mm-hmm. Maybe when I was younger than 30, <laughs> I might have felt similar, perhaps. Like, oh, 30's approaching. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, Looking back on that now, it sort of seems comical. I'm, I'm laughing at Robert Smith and his his gloomy yeah. feelings. Well, that in the best goth sense, he was overdramatic and um, melodramatic and more emotional than he needed to be. Sure. But it's human. I don't blame him. Uh, but yeah, who cares if you turn 30? It's 40 that really kills you, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're looking forward to that. Yeah. Can I say that uh, Fascination Street was their first U.S. single... But in the UK, Lullaby was their first single. But the American record company thought Lullaby was a suckier song. So they pushed for Fascination Street. And then as The Cure continued to take off, Lullaby did become an American single. But oddly, I think Love Song was number three. And that's clearly the catchiest, sure, it, be- it biggest hit, destined to be the biggest hit on the album. Definitely. And uh, from what I've read, there's another reason why Fascination Street was released as a single in the US, but not anywhere else. Do tell. I will. Apparently, it appeared in the film Lost Angels. Never heard of that. Never movie. heard of this one. This is a Donald Sutherland film. Oh, uh, I do like him. Also starring, you ready for this? Adam Horovitz. Oh, Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys. Oh, yes. God, sorry. And also, this is kind of crazy. It had a couple home improvement cast members. Remember that TV show? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, including uh, Tim Allen's wife from that show. And uh, the, also, I think the guy that played uh, Tim the Toolman Taylor's brother as well. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I do not even remember that character. Sorry. Um, and I think uh, Polly Shore showed up in a small oh, role as kid number three. Yeah. Was he a kid? <laughs> uh, no, he wasn't. I think he was oh. in his early 20s. But, I, I want to see was, him be a kid. He was credited as kid number three, yeah, yeah, according to my cast. research. A great role. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we got to check this movie out. Uh, party tonight after this podcast. Yeah. So Fascination Street appears in this film, Lost uh-huh. Angels. U.S. says, let's make it a single, U.S. only. Sure. And it's a pretty unusual single. Yeah. It captures the album well, but it's not a normal pop structure. First of all, there's an extended intro. It goes on for over a minute 20, I think, before uh, there's any singing. Yeah, that sounds about right. And if I'm not mistaken, I think there's only one verse... And uh, two choruses. Not your normal pop single. No, but it seems that that's what the modern rock charts were about, having listened to your podcast. Yeah, I mean, they're not all astructural, but there's a lot of weirdness going on. Yeah, this. I mean, if if you were going to release a single like this, modern rock charts is the place for it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and listen to the song. Okay, looking forward to it. Here we go. Fascination Street. 
time down on Fascination Street. So let's cut the conversation to get out the way. So I feel it all fading and paling. But I'm begging you to drive you down with me to keep the last nail. Yeah, Alright, Fascination Street by The Cure. Thank you. I loved it. Yeah, I loved it too. That one for me is a real grower. Yeah. The more I hear it, the more I like it. Just yeah. I keep building my appreciation with every listen. Good. I know that I like a lot more gloomy and depressing music than you, so I like hearing your point of view on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it is a grower, but like a lot of that album, Disintegration, it kind of has this groove-based music, and it puts you in a trance and kind of really sets a mood. Yeah, but you have definitely. to be open to that mood. Mm-hmm. I think it helps to actively listen which we just did. Mm-hmm. And um, then it also has this, I feel like, secret party vibe. He talks about moving to the beat. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a gloomy uh, downtown by Petula Clark or something. Oh, yeah? Yeah, because I feel like he's saying, go down to Fascination Street, we'll dance. And I don't know what else he's talking about, but you know, he's at least dancing there. Yeah, sure. And I feel like saying Fascination Street makes it kind of creepy, like it's a you know, sketchy city or something. Sure. Yeah, I'm not a lyrics master as far as even hearing them, but um, yeah, that's my impression. And I think you could say that the lyrics are muddled enough deliberately that you're allowed your own interpretation. And, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a grower, and I love that. Sounds like bass guitar, that bass line that just drives the whole song. Yeah. And just lots of little touches, even the weird feedback squall at the end. Right. It just is a nice tonal ending. A song like this really makes me appreciate the existence of the modern rock charts at this yeah. point in time, because this is a kind of song that it, I just don't think would have traction on any other chart. It's just a little too out there for um, mainstream listeners. Mm-hmm. And so it's great that there's some place for a song like this. That being said, are you surprised at all that this song hit number one? Uh, no, yes and no. I mean, The Cure had obviously been building a huge fan base, mm-hmm. and this was kind of their time to crest. And you know, you know, a certain point you're so popular that whatever you put out is a hit. Right. Um, and their previous album had so many pop hits, just like Heaven, Why Can't I Be You? I don't know what the other hits are, but those are some of the poppy songs. Right. So in that sense, they were almost destined to have a hit. But what was weird to me is it looked like Love Song charted way higher in the pop charts, but didn't even hit number one on Modern Rock. No, I don't think it did. I, I think it stalled at number two. Yeah. So maybe, do you feel like those charts kind of disavow something that's too poppy i think that does happen sometimes yeah and we're actually going to see that with our next song and we'll talk about that in a few minutes okay anything else you want to say about this song um nah i'm done <laughs> i'm out <laughs> okay so that's a great time for us to move on to our next song then we're going to hear a song by a band called fine young cannibals so they seem kind of faux reggae i mean were they just a bunch of white guys from england or what were what was well, the deal? That's an interesting question so two of the members of fine young cannibals are actually former members of the beat, or as they're sometimes called over here, the English beat. Oh, yeah. I like their early stuff a lot. They put out a call for a new lead singer, and from what I understand, they spent a very long time listening to countless cassette tapes of uh, possible lead singers, and finally they settled on a young man named Roland Gift. Wow. And Roland Gift, your question about whether this was a bunch of white guys... I'm not sure what his uh, ethnicity is. And I, in fact, I think he kind of toyed with the media a little bit, um, intentionally not really re- revealing his background. Hmm. But he looks like he could be partially 
of African descent and partially of Asian descent and partially of who knows what else. I'm not sure. He's got a kind of an ambiguous look there. Yeah. Sounds like a great look. Yeah. And for a brief period in time in 1989, these guys were huge. They blew up. They had two number one hits on the pop charts. Wow. Back to back. The first one and their most well-known song, She Drives Me Crazy. Yeah. That, I always love that. And I think I did know that at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you know a Fine Young Cannibal song, it's going to be She Drives Me Crazy. Mm-hmm. It's great. And they followed it up with another number one pop song called Good Thing. And that's what we're going to hear today. So it had, it hit number one on the Hot 100 pop charts, but it also hit number two on the modern rock charts. Okay. And this is from their second album called The Raw and the Cooked which went double platinum in the United States and ended up selling over 3 million copies worldwide. Now think about that, though. I mean, their legacy is not very great. But meanwhile, The Cure have a lot of albums, but their bestseller was equal to that. It's just, and yet they have a way better legacy. I mean, I guess they're rewarded in that sense, but... Yeah, that's right. Um, One other thing that I think is interesting about this album is that a good chunk of it had been released prior to this album being put together. I think the first song that was released was a cover of Ever Fallen in Love by the Buzzcocks. Now, if you're a younger listener, you might know the song because Pete Yorn covered it for the Shrek 2 soundtrack. (laughs) Classic soundtrack. (laughs) That's right. So, um, Ever Fallen in Love, the reason it was released prior to this album is because it appeared in a Jonathan Demme film called Something Wild. Um, Wow. I'm sorry. I'm speechless here. Because... um, I should have known that. I have that soundtrack on vinyl, and I really like it overall. This soundtrack features all kinds of artists who have appeared on the modern rock charts, will appear on the modern rock charts, or should have appeared on the modern rock charts, such as songs by The Feelies, The Go-Betweens, X, New Order, Big Audio Dynamite. Unfortunately, not all those bands are on the vinyl, but um, the songs that do make it to the soundtrack seem to have a kind of all world music undertones. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's two Talking Heads songs. I think one's Tom Tom Club. I think Big Audio Dynamite's on there. And Fine Young Cannibals. And as we know, all those bands experimented with world sounds. Right. Now, I haven't seen the movie. Have you seen it? Yeah, I highly recommend it. Okay. This is a Jeff Daniels... And uh, Melanie, Melanie Griffith, Griffith and Ray Liotta. Okay. It's the freakiest ending I've ever seen in a movie. It's kind of like a slapstick goofball movie. And then it turns... Uh, spoiler alert. Uh-oh extremely violent okay well i mean that's all i'll say so here here's the thing i haven't seen it yet but ray Liotta's in it i don't think that was too much of a spoiler <laughs> yeah just as soon as you see him you know there's violence coming right now speaking of movie soundtracks let's talk about a different movie okay three other songs from the raw and the cooked including good thing the song that we're going to be listening to in a moment they had been released prior to this album because they appeared in a barry levinson film called tin men Fine Young Cannibals actually appear in this film as a band that plays in a nightclub. Are they playing themselves? No, because I think it's supposed to take place uh, in a previous decade. Mm. And that also sort of explains the sound of this song, because we'll listen to it in a moment. You'll notice it doesn't quite sound like a late 80s song. It has more of a 60s feel to it. So at least four of the songs have been released prior to this album, Six of the songs from the album were eventually released as singles. Wow. That's pretty huge. Yeah. So well, let's go ahead and listen to it. Finding Cannibals, good thing. Here we go. 
Good thing. Find Young Cannibals. Wow, that is such a weird song. <laughs> In what way? To me, that is almost a novelty song. Really? Yeah. I mean, I won't deny it. it's very catchy. It's kind of cute. It's poppy. I was bobbing my head to the music, but it's pretty trivial and slight, and it, I'm a little surprised it qualified as modern rock. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. It's not very edgy at all. Um, I like it. I don't love it. It's clearly Motown-inspired, right? Yeah, yeah. But you're right. It does seem... It seems like an homage, but it doesn't capture the the soul or the grit or the strong feelings of the best Motown songs. Yeah, I feel like it would play on a soap commercial. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, and it reminds me why I probably didn't like Finding Young Cannibal's Greatest Hits mm-hmm. because I don't really like the guy's voice that much. Okay. And um, that song was kind of like Huey Lewis meets Billy Joel. I hear a little Huey Lewis maybe. He's kind of like a sub-sub Joe Cocker, like a... Ethnically ambiguous blue-eyed soul okay. music that, meh, sorry guys. Right. But, you know, very poppy. I'm sure it suited the movie well. Maybe it played over the credits or some cool montage where they're making some money. Did you get a, a bit of a freeze frame, Jay Giles band <laughs> vibe from the uh, chorus? Yeah, is that the one that goes, freeze frame? Yeah. Yeah, that's the one. it's the same. You're yeah. right, it's a knockoff. <laughs> what the heck, guys? FYC. <laughs> okay, so liked it, didn't love it. Uh Probably there's a reason people don't remember this song as well as uh, She Drives Me Crazy. Okay, our third song is by a band called The Cult. I do not know The Cult. I had trouble finding a lot of good information about The Cult. So not a lot of interesting facts. <laughs> They're I know, too cult level. I, I guess so, that's right. That They're, was a they, they should have been the mainstream. of a name. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know they formed in 1983 as Death Cult. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, and then they they change it to the less cool cult. Yeah, the cult. that's kind of creepy. One's cool, one's creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started as kind of a post-punk goth band. That makes sense. Right, fits the name. Yeah. But by 1989, they had morphed into more of like a hard rock band. Yeah. And I think that you'll definitely hear some, some Doors influence here. So I get the cult confused with the church, but one of those guys toured as the Doors lead singer recently. Mm-hmm. And Is that's, it the cult? that's the cult. All right. Yes. So since you brought this up, uh, Oliver Stone, if you remember, he made a Doors biopic. Yeah, I loved that at the time. Right. He approached Ian Asbury, the lead singer of the cult, to play Jim Morrison in wow. the Doors movie. And Ian Asbury was, um, I guess, too busy being the lead singer from the cult. They were sailing high on some success. And um, maybe he just didn't like the idea of acting, but he turned them down and the role, of course, went to Val Kilmer. Which seemed like a breakout role for Val. Yes, but as you just mentioned, later in the 2000s, uh, Ian Asbury did front The Doors. So I wonder if Oliver Stone had heard him sing a Doors song. I mean, he obviously had a talent for Doors impersonation mm-hmm. that maybe Oliver picked up on. Maybe when we listen to the song, you'll you'll hear uh, yeah, something. Maybe it's self-evident, yeah. And you'll say, oh, that guy should, should be I in The Doors say, movie. Maybe I should like the cult more because I worshiped the doors in middle school. Love them. You did? That was like my entry into goth music. If you think about it, they have kind of a darkness. Mm-hmm. They do. You're so right. So it was a good precursor to the cure. Yeah. I think the first doors song I ever heard was when I bought the Forrest Gump soundtrack. <laughs> of course. What yeah. song was it? Uh, break on Hello? Two. Oh, I was going to say, yep. Hello, I Love You. Yeah, it was Break on Two. That, that was an exciting song for me. I was uh, really into that. That is almost a punk song. That is actually a great garage rock song. Mm-hmm. So, by the time we get to 1989, the cult are on their fourth album. It's called Sonic Temple. Don't like things with the word temple. You know, it does seem like uh, 
a precursor to grunge. It sounds like a very grunge yeah, name, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a turn off now. Right? It's yeah, like Timbo mashing. Dog meets Sonic Youth. Yes. Yeah, yeah we're Stone Temple Pilots. Or, oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I actually kind of like Stone Temple Pilots, so I still don't like the name Temple. Okay. This song we're going to listen to is called Fire Woman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so That's an amazing title. <laughs> come on, baby. Light my Fire Woman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is a Doors title. Isn't LA it? Fire Woman. Yeah. Yes. I read on Wikipedia that it appeared in the singles soundtrack, the movie Singles. Oh, wow. But I couldn't actually find any evidence that that was true, and I didn't want to get the movie out and search for it. Um, I did find that another cult song, She Sells Sanctuary, appears in that film. Yeah. I also read that it appeared in a 2013 episode of Doctor Who. Wow, I wouldn't know. No, so uh, <laughs> I'll call my brother up. Sorry, we'll, we'll, we'll check that Who one fans. out. That's that's pretty much all the fun facts I've got for this band. Those are great facts. Thank yeah. you. Okay. <laughs> Which they may or may not be facts. <laughs> yeah. So let's just go ahead and listen to it. Fire Woman. Here we go. Okay, Firewoman. Oh, wow. That was an experience. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to sound harsh, but that was not to my taste. No. Just, I can't emphasize that enough. So I can understand why that was a popular song in 1989. Yeah. But I can't understand why it's on the modern rock charts. It doesn't sound like what I think of as college rock or indie rock or underground rock. No, not at all. sounds like mainstream hard rock. Right, exactly. And these guys were touring or toured at some point with Metallica, Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith. That makes sense to me. Yeah. Are these guys American? No, they're British. Uh, Maybe that gave them lower status and therefore they were modern rock qualified. I mean... (laughs) I don't know how serious you are, but... Uh, I'm serious. Um, that could be. It seems like, at least at this point, 1989, the modern rock charts are just slammed with British artists. Somehow being British seems to make you more of a modern rock artist. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, and, and of course, all those hair metal bands that were popular at the time, most of those were American bands, right? Every band we just met, you mentioned, that, right. you know, those are all American. Poison, yeah. Motley Crue, whatever. Like oh, Most of those bands are American. Yeah, and see, when this song came out, I only listened to rap music and R&B, yep. and we would have wars over rap versus rock, and this is the type <laughs> of music that who is, defined rock. Who is we, and what well, are, the, what are these was, wars consist of? it was the whole class, Yeah, we all liked rap and R&B, except okay. for one girl and one boy, they liked hard rock, and they would wear Guns N' Roses shirts, and we would, you know... We were friends with them, but we would still make fun of them and call them idiots. That you know? is not a fair war right there. And so to me, it's anathema to my... It was mm-hmm. was then, and it still is. I, I like virtually no 80s hard rock, uh-huh. even though I love 80s music now. No, sorry. Yeah. I yeah. can't take it. Right. And do you like any hard rock from the 80s, really? Well, I, I do like Guns N' Roses. I oh, you that. like them now? I do. I like Guns N' Roses, yeah. I'm halfway like them because my wife like really pushes them. Really? Yeah. Now, what about this? Soundgarden... They sound a lot like a hard rock band, especially early in their career. Yeah, and I still don't like them. Oh, okay. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, are are these guys in some sense precursors to Soundgarden? Are they are they an influence there? Maybe. I'd have to follow their career more than this one song, but I do agree that a lot of that grunge, you know, the first Nirvana albums, kind of early Pearl Jam, had a hard rock vibe, mm-hmm. even though they 
a lot of them hated the hard rockers, but right. there was so, a connection. Soundgarden's definitely, uh, especially early on, sounds like a hard rock band. And they also do have a lot of psychedelic touches. And I think the cult has a few psychedelic touches in there as well. Yeah. I felt like that song also was kind of blues rocky, mm-hmm. which is not a genre I like of any era in that, general. That's true. And I would say, I don't think Soundgarden ever verged on no, blues they rock. So. Thankfully. Good job. Yeah. Not into the blues rock too much. No, except for some 60s stuff. That's it. No. Okay. Well, you might not be into our last band. Who, oh. oh, I want to go out on a high. Yeah, well, you know what? I like this song. I'm not I'm not a huge blues rock fan either, um, but I like this song, and I like this band we're going to hear. Um, they're called The House of Freaks. Wow. Yeah, interesting name. It, it kind of reminds me of like 10,000 Maniacs, right? It's a, it's a name that sounds scary, like it probably came from a horror movie, or I think in this case, like a circus poster yeah and uh doesn't really seem to match the music at all yeah i love when bands don't have a talent for naming their, themselves right how many radio programmers do you think just decided not to even give this a spin because the name a turned lot. them off? freaks is a strong word right you just feel like oh it's gotta be weird right i don't want some, my listeners yeah don't this want is too weird. heavy this is too dark for us i haven't yeah. heard it yeah but it's not for us yeah like death cult okay so this band house of freaks this is a two-man band. That's cool. And not in the sense of two guys with synthesizers and they're programming a whole bunch of stuff. This is a singer-slash-guitarist mm-hmm. by the name of Brian Harvey and a drummer by the name of Johnny Hot. Wow. it's a good name. Good name, man. So I don't know if you could say these guys influenced bands like the White Stripes and Black Keys, but... They certainly were doing that thing before those other bands did. The the no bass player, one drummer yeah. and one guitar singer. Yeah, it's great. So these guys, in 1989, they released their second album, Tantilla. Bad album title too, man. Yeah, I had to look that one up because I wasn't sure if it was going to be pronounced Tantilla or Tantilla. Like a tortilla. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a Tantilla is, I guess, a, a type of small, harmless snake. Aw, cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of cute. I'd get one of those as a pet. Yeah. And this band is kind of a, a blues folk rock band, but they tend to have a, like a Southern Gothic style, at least lyrically, to their music. They, huh. they have an obsession with Southern Gothic I like that. genre. So are they American? They are American, yes. Okay. You're an English guy. You read a lot of books and things. Yep. Can you tell us a little bit about Southern Gothic? Uh, yeah, I'm on the spot here. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, as a genre. <coughs> As a genre, you got William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. I think they were writing in the 20s, or at least Faulkner was. Okay. And it was involved a lot of family darkness mm-hmm. and uh, kind of emphasizing the seedier side of the South. Okay. Maybe a little bit of fantasy in there, too. Okay. A lot of imagery of old mansions that are yeah, decaying r- falling mansions, apart. Abandoned plantations, mm-hmm. ghosts of slaves. Right. Uh, you know, kind of like True Detective season one was a kind of Southern Gothic. Okay, yeah. In that sense, maybe the the band name makes a little more sense. Yeah, it actually does. As soon as you said those Southern Gothic, I thought, ah, oh, that makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this band, they put out four albums and an EP before they broke up in the mid-90s. And they have actually kind of an interesting history. So once they broke up, both of them joined a new band called Gutterball. Gutterball consisted of members of Dream Syndicate and the Long Riders. And then uh, after that, Johnny Hot joined the band Cracker. Oh, yeah. Really? 
I always think I should like Cracker, but I don't know why I think that. Cracker is a band formed by David Lowery, who was in oh, Camper that's Van why, Beethoven. That's why. Yeah, I like Camper Van mm-hmm. Beethoven. And then those guys from Cracker, including Johnny Hot, assisted Sparkle Horse on their first album. Wow, that is some continuity. That is Southern Gothic, mm-hmm. for sure. So regardless of what their music sounds like, uh, they are friends with people whose music we like. Yeah. Yeah. And just because I don't want to stick this sad tale at the end and, and close the whole episode on a down note, Brian Harvey and his wife and two children were brutally murdered in 2006 Aww. as they were preparing for a New Year's party. Wow. Um, That's awful. Yeah. Someone just came into their house, killed them. And Johnny Hot, the other member of the band, had shown up to the party with his daughter, called the cops, and that's how they were wow. found. So that's very sad. A lot those, of tragedy that, those here. Those are Southern Gothic stories. They are kind of Southern they Gothic are. stories, yeah. So I, I felt that that had to be mentioned. It was, it's kind of a big part of their story, and uh, I don't really want to dwell on it too much. But Well, yeah. gosh, I better like this song. Yeah, it is what it is. So let's go ahead and listen to it. This song, it only hit number 23 on the modern rock charts. So it's probably not a song that too many listeners are familiar with so was this one of their biggest hits i don't know if they ever had a big hit but they had three songs that made it onto the modern rock charts and uh this was one of those three okay yeah so here it is this song is called sun gone down Okay, Sun Gone Down. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, what'd you think? I actually did like that. Was not blown away. I felt like it did have a southern rock vibe more than uh, blues mm-hmm. rock, mm-hmm. but through 80s underground filter. Yeah. And I, I liked it, and I, I think it's the type of song that could grow on me more. I wasn't in love with the vocals, but I liked them more on the chorus, and mm-hmm. the more I listened, and the chorus was really good, and the cowbell was fun. And I was trying to hear if there was any overdubs or anything, but it sounded like maybe just two instruments. What do you think? Yeah, it was hard to tell, but it certainly it had a full, a sound. full sound, definitely. And that sounded very much like what I think of as modern rock, and um, I'd love to hear another song by those guys. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of reminds me of something that maybe like a Matthew Sweet might do if he was yeah, fronted yeah. by more of a southern, <laughs> a southern gothic band. Yeah. And I like the lyrics. I smiled at the standing in the graveyard line. Mm-hmm. And yeah. not mockingly, just right. enjoying that. It's I love embracing a little melodrama. Right. Well, oh. that was educational. I, I appreciate that song more than all the others. Cool. And also, I should just add, uh, are you familiar with a band called the Drive-By Truckers? Yes. Yeah, um, I'm not super familiar with their material, but apparently they knew Brian Harvey. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2008, they released a song called Two Daughters and a Beautiful Wife, which was a, uh, a ballad and it was a tribute to Brian Harvey. Um, and his family. That's um, touching. Yeah, so if you're if you're interested in this story, uh, maybe check it out. Yeah, and that sounds like um, House of Freaks had a lasting impact on the music community on some level at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something to be proud of. Right. Okay, so let me ask this. Uh, May 1989, we're getting real close to the 90s here. Oh, yeah. Do you hear the 90s approaching? To me, The Cure sounds like early 90s. 
but it doesn't sound like grunge. Right. The others, yeah, I can actually hear House of Freaks in some 90s music. To me, the cult sounds very dated. I mean, there was some bands, like we mentioned, Soundgarden, that had a certain hard rock vibe, but right. I feel like that was a dated sound. Yeah. And, and then, then obviously, course, yes. FYC was very dated, and right. no one ever went back to doo-wop after that song came yeah. out. And, you know, kind of to all of our detriment, I think. Yeah, I wish they did. I mean... Not yeah. that I want all pop music to be doo-wop, but it is kind of sad when there's a really fun genre that exists, and then just... It's Everyone dead. stops making it. Yeah, it is pretty dead. Um, well, plus doo-wop, and you, you know my favorite band is the Beach Boys, and they mm-hmm. were heavily doo-wop influenced. Doo-wop allowed people to highlight harmonies, vocals, right? all these things that a lot of modern bands can't be bothered with. I mean, I, I hear songs with great harmonies, but it's just not as frequent as it used mm-hmm. to be. It's kind of sad, and I think partly it's because the whole doo-wop genre. Now you would seem stupid, it seems like, if you're like, ba ba boop 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 I mean, but to me, that's cool as heck when I listen to those old songs. Yeah. It's that's real vocal skill. I know. I really like the idea of, you know, just a bunch of guys hanging out on a street corner. Oh, yeah. Harmonizing Can you imagine? together. Yeah. I would love to walk by that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. Thank you. Love the show. Yeah, thanks. If you would like to send us some questions or comments, you can email us at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Otherwise, uh, tune in every other week, every other Monday, and uh, keep listening. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Bye.